We don't often think of it being a privilege to live in days of apostasy and idolatry and religious compromise. We are living in such days, aren't we? Days when there is widespread a turning away from the gospel, from the word of God. Days of widespread apostasy, idolatry and religious compromise. So you say, well, what is the privilege? Well, one of the privileges is that in such darkness... We see the glorious light of God's grace. It shines with a brightness that we may not see in other, if you like, more fervent religious days. We see men like Elijah, men and women who live under the word of God. And their submission and commitment to God's word shines bright in contrast to the unbelief and the rebellion of others. We think of a man like Obadiah here. Someone who will see is said to fear the Lord greatly. Oh yes, undoubtedly there are those with a heart like Ahab. Uh, We finished last time considering the the hardness of his heart. That though the evidence was clear that he was under the judgment of God. He closed his ears to that word. And determined to persist in his ungodly rejection of the one true and living God. We certainly live in days when people will believe anything but the truth. They'll reject the obvious evidence and believe the lies that are presented to them in all manner of ways. But Obadiah stands before us again today as a challenging character. Certainly there are things that would raise questions in our minds. But let me give you a summary of what I think the main point of his inclusion in this narrative is. I believe he is an example of what God can do in using his God-fearing people to thwart evil and to promote good. He's here, if you like, to say to Jezebel, you don't get it all your way. God is greater than every Jezebel. He's here an example of God's abiding faithfulness and grace. But especially... We could note something of the words of verse 3 and verse number 12. Verse 3, he feared the Lord greatly. And verse number 12, he is said to fear the Lord from his youth. Today, of course, uh, we are going from here to a baptismal service. Where you'll see and witness four young men publicly professing faith in the Lord. Professing to fear God from their youth. To challenge to others. It's a reminder to all of us. Will we be those who no matter what the world will do. We will fear God. That we'll fear God because that is right and that is true and that is good. To challenge again to those who are being baptized. Your baptism is again a public determination to serve God. But Will you serve God in all of your days? And what will God do in and through you in the coming days? It's a challenging portion of God's word. But looking at the count, we see here that Obadiah in verse number 2 is described as being a governor of Ahab's house. Again, there are some differences of thought regarding the status of his position. But as likely, he is very high ranking, perhaps according to some, even second or third in terms of the hierarchy of the land. He's not just, if you like, he's not just a servant in Ahab's house. He is a high-ranking governmental official holding high office. 
I mentioned last time that throughout history, God has placed men in positions for his purposes. The elector of Saxony was fundamental to Luther's advance and preservation. John of Gaunt did much to help Wycliffe in his work for the Lord's cause. And so we see Obadiah being raised of God in such a circumstance, working in an ungodly regime, undoubtedly with his own personal weaknesses, but a man of whom there is no evidence of him compromising principle in his role. The testament of God's word is that he fears the Lord greatly. Again, I remind you of the words of A.W. Pink in this regard. He says this, There is nothing wrong in a child of God holding a position of influence. He doesn't end there. There's a conditional clause in the sentence, and it's very, very important. There is nothing wrong in a child of God holding a position of influence. And here's the condition. If he can do so without the sacrifice of principle. And that's the fundamental difference. And so Obadiah is here, and it does look to be the case that he served in Ahab's court without himself sacrificing God's principles. Indeed, says Pink, it may enable this individual to render valuable service to the cause of God. And so it is for Obadiah. Now, before we go further, there is something I have to address. Because there is one objection that has been raised to my understanding of Obadiah to this point. And the objection that is raised is this. Does the Bible not speak of men serving idols while yet still fearing God? Is there not a reference somewhere in the Bible where we read of someone and they are said to fear the Lord at the same time as serving their idols? Well, there is. It's over in Second Kings chapter 17. So turn there, please. Second Kings chapter 17. And you'll see an account here of those, again, who are said to fear the Lord and serve their own gods. You got it there. Verse 32. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places and these are days in the Assyrian captivity of compromise in the people of God verse 33 they feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence is this Obadiah's state is it the case in verse 41 so these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images is that the case for Obadiah Is he just another in the litany of compromisers who profess to fear God and yet in truth they do so with compromise? Well, well, note verse 34 of this chapter. It says here, Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord. Neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinance or after the law and commandment, which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So what's going on here? Do they fear the Lord or do they not fear the Lord? Well, when you look at verse 24 and following, you will see that they have a terror of the Lord 
And again, I'm not going back through all the context, but we saw on Wednesday night in prayer meeting that there are various two primary ways in which we may fear God. There may be a terror of God, but a terror of God that does not lead to faith, but turns away from the Lord. And so there is, again, to some degree, either profession of fear of God or terror of God, but not a fear unto knowledge. And so 2 Kings 17, to my mind, is not in the same category as Obadiah in 1 Kings chapter 18. Because again, back to 1 Kings 18, we see that the word greatly is used regarding Obadiah's fear. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And again, we saw last time the word greatly there is also used of the waters that increased greatly upon the earth in the days of the flood. Then you have in verse 4 an example of Obadiah's fear that is positive. For it was so. And you get a narrative that is positive regarding Obadiah's actions that I think underscore the fact that his fearing of the Lord in verse number 3 is a positive attitude. And so today I trust we'll see this man as an example, yes, with his weaknesses. A testimony of God's authority as being over the authority of the Jezebels of this world. A wicked regime. Obadiah finds himself working in that regime. Because why? Because God has placed him there. He's there according to the sovereign will of God. He's there for such a time as this. And God can raise such a man without him compromising principle. Of course, this is not unusual in the word of God. You have Daniel and Joseph. You have those like Johanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward. You have those of Caesar's household in Philippians chapter 4. You have examples, abundant examples in the word of God of those who raise to places of influence and do so because God places them there. His work is a testimony to Jezebel's failure. God has placed his God-fearing servant to do his will. That's what Obadiah's name means. He is a servant of Jehovah. And so I want to see today Obadiah as a God-fearer who serves the Lord faithfully. First of all, please note the attitude that governs true service. The attitude, of course, is in verse 3 and verse number 12, the attitude that is said to fear the Lord. Now for Obadiah, he says, this is true from his youth. I don't want to pause here too long, but I think it's worth comment that one of the significant faults in modern times is a delay in maturity. We keep putting off the years of adulthood amongst our young people. We prevent them making serious decisions when they're younger. We keep saying, well, you're too young for that or too young for this or too young for the next thing. And before long, adulthood's going to be like 50 years old. Now it's time to grow up. I'm being sarcastic and facetious there I understand that but I hope you get the point that in former generations it was not unusual for people in their mid to late teens making very very serious decisions about life it is not for the good of society that we say to young people you're not mature enough to make a good decision it is sad to say that we excuse our young people by saying that is simply the folly of youth I understand I get it We were all young once, 
And we all do things in our youth that with advancing years we would not do a second time. And there is something regarding experience that develops maturity. But at no point does the Bible say, now it's time for you to walk with God. Rather, it's always time to walk with God. And it's always time to walk in the fear of God. Young people, do not excuse yourselves because you say, well, I'm too young to take life seriously. It's never too early to take life seriously. In terms of walking with God, humbly with God, and seriously before the Lord. And so Obadiah is one that is said to fear God from his youth. Now this language of being a God-fearer is really in the Old Testament synonymous with true and genuine religion. Now, I know we've embarked in this series in our prayer meetings on the subject of the fear of God. And I don't want to go through all of that material. So let me just summarize it this way. The God-fearers in the Bible were the true people of God. We saw a couple weeks ago that in every phase of redemptive history, those who walk with God are said to fear God. For Job in the patriarchal realm or the, the psalmist or the, uh, those in the prophets or in the gospels, they are those who are said to fear God. Even to First Peter chapter 2, we are to love the brotherhood, we are to fear God. The fear of God should really sum up what we are as individuals. Because it is the beginning of wisdom. It is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So what is it to fear God? And why is it so important for Obadiah? Well, please turn across to Leviticus chapter 19. I love using this portion to illustrate what it is to fear God. It's, such a, it's an intriguing verse. Uh, I've used it several times to illustrate the fear of God. It's intriguing, and I think it makes the point very, very well. Oh, undoubtedly, there is a fear of God, as we saw. A fear of God as in terror. that caused us to run from the Lord. But there's also a fear of God that is a fear of awe and reverence. A fear of esteem and veneration. Well, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14, you have these words. Thou shalt not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind. Now, you would think these are obvious matters of common courtesy. You don't curse the deaf because they cannot hear. You don't trip up a blind because they cannot see. Such actions are actions of cruelty. But you'll note that when the Lord gives us this word of command and warning, he says, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear thy God. It is the contrast that I think makes the point. To fear God is to have an awareness of God's eye and God's ear. Though the deaf cannot hear your curses and the blind may not see your trip, God hears and God sees. And so to fear God is to live under an awareness of God's eye and God's ear, an awareness that then does something. Yes, you have the awareness of God's all-seeing eye and all-hearing ear, but from that awareness, there is then a governance of your actions. Knowing that God sees and God hears, then prevents you from speaking a curse to the deaf, or putting a stumbling block before the blind. 
And so the fear of God is this combination of an awareness, an attitude of God's eye, and then that governing your actions because you do not want to violate God's law, but you want to know the favor and the pleasure of God's smile. So that in condensed form is something of the definition of this proper fear of God. And that is so crucial when you think about Obadiah. You see, go back to 1 Kings chapter 18. The illustration that is given, and we'll see this very soon, the illustration that is given for proving Obadiah's fear is verse 4. I'm just going to simply read one word. Jezebel. He feared the Lord greatly. Jezebel. You see, when we come to fear God, we are set free from every other fear. We have no need to fear a man or a woman. We have no need to fear persecution or even death. Obadiah is acting in such a way that is very much opposed to the desires of Jezebel, and yet he does so because he fears God. Let me show you this in just two passages and then we'll move on. First of all, look in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Those of you in the book club, remember this text from our book club times. We looked at the proper uh, nature of the fear of God a couple of years ago, maybe now. And we saw these verses, verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 8. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying... What's happening here is that there are people who, in the face of impending captivity and judgment, were going to bring themselves together as a confederacy. And Isaiah is told, Say ye not a confederacy to all those to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Now there's a fear of coming judgment. And the people are saying, we'll group together and there's safety in numbers. And therefore, we will not fear the fear of this people. But Isaiah's solution to their fear, because they are afraid, is verse 13. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. And let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. What is it that delivers you from the fear of man? The fear of persecution? The fear of trouble and trial, the thing that sets you free from that fear, is realizing the fear of God. For in the fear of God, there is no fear of harm. Do you get that? In the fear of God, there is no potential of eternal spiritual harm. I didn't say physical harm, but there is no potential of spiritual harm. Verse 14, and he shall be for a sanctuary. He'll be your safe place. Fear God and do not fear man. Then the same is also the case over in Luke chapter 12. And this we looked at on uh, Wednesday evening past, Luke chapter 12. And the verse number 4. But I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that have no more that they can do, but I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath cast, uh, killed, sorry, hath power to cast into hell, yea, I say unto you, 
fear him. I really pray that our young people grasp this. If you get this when you're young, it will change your life. It will set you free from carnal anxiety. And it will set you free from the cowardice that will deny your Savior. It is the fear of God that sets you free from the fear of man. And young people today, you're living in a time when you're under scrutiny like no other time. Your peers see what you eat for breakfast. Because you cheat a shirt with them, but that's fine. That They see everything in your life. And every time you're engaged in social media, you find yourself presented with a choice. Will I stand for Christ? Or will I walk with a company to do evil? And if you do not fear the Lord, then you will continually fear being cancelled by this world. Fear God and be free. Fear man and live the rest of your life in continual bondage. I want to make sure that everybody else likes me. Or that I can set myself free from the potential harm in the future of serving God. It is the fear of God that governs Obadiah's life. And governs true service. But we've got to move on and notice the action that then proves this attitude to serve Again, back in verse number four of our passage, we were given the details of his action. Now, we should note, Obadiah is a governor of Ahab's house. Again, like this high-ranking official. Now, before we see how he violates his role, we should note his submission. He submits himself even to Ahab's rule. Verse 5, Ahab gives Obadiah an instruction that is not very wise. He instructs him to try to find grass to save the horses and the mules. Now I said before, this is not a matter of preserving the life of the animals only. It is to defend the army and the force of the nation. But Ahab has no heart for those in real need. No heart for people. No heart for the suffering of his subjects. And yet Obadiah consents to do Ahab's will in the language of verse number 6. And some of you have to work under ungodly bosses and authority. At times it is not easy. But as Peter tells his readers, Servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. Now, there is this need to submit, provided submission does not lead to violating God's law, either by not keeping God's law or by transgressing God's law. Wives must submit to ungodly husbands. Children even must submit to ungodly parents at times. But having said that, Obadiah stands out because he used his position to obey God and not to obey Jezebel. He clearly knows Jezebel's desire. Verse number four, she is seeking to cut off the prophets of the Lord. Now, the language there of cutting off is a language that involves the shedding of blood. She is not simply trying to put them out of the land to, if you like, to send them off to some far-flung place. This is the language of death. 
And Obadiah here acts with great courage. Because those who fear God don't fear risk. Properly defined. They will not fear doing what is right. Because of perceived consequences going forward. Note the number here. 100 prophets. Set in two groups. 50 in one cave. 50 in another cave. Feeding them continually with bread and water. This is a monumental exercise. I have no idea how he succeeded this without being caught. The discretion and the wisdom and the guile to bring about enough food and water to feed a hundred men in two locations and to do so and preserve his life is remarkable. But of course, he had God on his side. And God has his Elijahs, but he also has his Obadiahs. Men who are faithful in different contexts, men who have different tasks to perform, one preaching God's word and the other preserving God's word. Both require courage and conviction in times of declension. And if you're going to fear God today and in the coming days, you may well have to get to the point of disobeying authority. The areas of child rearing. You may well in the coming days have to say, I will raise my children according to God's word and not according to man's dictates. Financial integrity. Education of young people. Obeying God and not man. You know, parents, you're like the mother of Moses. You want to guard your little one from the evils of this world. Seeking to reserve truth in their souls many many ways in which this must be brought out by way of example but there's one area i want to think about i want to encourage you that god is able to raise his god-fearing children into positions of influence without them having to compromise one of the things i've heard in the christian church since i've been in america the last six years relates to the issues of politics and the perception that it is impossible for a true believer to get elected. There's truth in that. It's a sign of God's judgment. It's a recognition of the heart of the majority. That the majority in this land will not stand for someone who is honest and true regarding their Christian principles. Humanly speaking, an honest believer... Walking in true public integrity will struggle to get the required support of such an ungodly age. And so we see those in the so-called conservative camp and they're prepared to buy the knee to the bail of the LGBT movement and give some credence to that abominable lifestyle. Because they perceive that if they do not go along with this, they will not get elected. And there is a fear that if we are truly faithful, then we will not be able to influence for good. I get all that. That makes sense, humanly speaking. But the God of Obadiah lives today. And God is able, according to his will, if he chooses, to raise up men of integrity to serve in this nation, if that would be his will. 
We do not need to be political as Christians in encouraging men to compromise conviction because we want to see them influencing in some way or another. As a church, I said last week we are not a political party here, but as a church it is a responsibility to say to people, this is the word of God, live by this book. Live by this book and leave the rest to God. That, I believe, is an encouragement to our souls. That as we pray for God to raise up more Elijahs to serve and to preach the word, so God may, in his kindness, raise up Mediahs to serve God in positions of authority. You see, what I see in this passage is this. I see the sovereignty of God in permitting Ahab to marry such a wicked woman and see the nation going to compromise. I see God as sovereign over that. But I also see the sovereignty of God in raising Obadiah to thwart the evil schemes of man. That though Jezebel is raised, God says, this far and no further, these hundred men, they're mine. You're not getting them. And I'm going to put Obadiah in the right place at the right time to serve my cause. That's what God can do. And yet we wring our hands and we find ourselves discouraged. And we say, if I can borrow the phrase, where is the Lord God of Obadiah? He's still in the heavens. He still does what he pleases. And he is the God who has every man's heart in his hand. Now, most of us will not be raised to Obadiah's position. That's a small, small minority get to have that role. But may you use the role that God gives you to be faithful to the Lord without compromise. Again, we all live in the fear, well, I'm a pastor, suppose I die. If, I, if I lack integrity, then I'm in trouble. But it is a temptation for the child of God in this world to sacrifice their integrity for the cause of promotion or acceptance. Now, whatever your role is, live it out for God. And be faithful to the Lord. You know, there's the wonderful account of Paul's sister's son in Acts chapter 23. Hearing of the plot of the religious leaders against Paul. His nephew hears the plot. How did he get there? How did he hear? Well, there are some who have the idea that he may well have been a pupil to some of the doctors. The teachers. God placed him there to be faithful in the right place at the right time for such a time as this. But thirdly, moving quickly, we should note the anxiety that questions surface. You see, there is a, a section here, a, a lengthy section in our narrative where we see Obadiah and Elijah in conversation. And it shows again that though we commend Obadiah, all is not perfect. We see that all is not always well in our God-fearing service. Again, it's good for young God-fearers to understand this. Fearing God doesn't mean that you're not prone sometimes to sinful thinking or sinful errors. Though you may have feared God courageously in the past, that does not exempt you, or sorry, that doesn't excuse the fact that you may at some time in the future know some weakness. And so it is here with Obadiah. In God's sovereign guiding, again, that's the language here, verse 6, Ahab goes one way, Obadiah another way. and they, By the way, the, the terms by themselves is that they went separately. 
doesn't necessarily mean they were all on their own, but they went separately in different directions. And then verse 7 says, And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him. Now, reading that carefully, again, it has to bring a smile to your face. It is very likely he knew Elijah because of his garb. Or perhaps he had met him in the past. We don't know for definite. But he then asked the question, is that you? He knows him, but he is so surprised to see him that he can't quite believe his eyes. Obadiah then engaged in this conversation. Elijah says to him, go tell thy Lord, Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah can't quite understand that request because he understands that compliance may lead to his death. Now, Obadiah, he gets it. He's no Elijah. We understand that. But his questioning, I believe, is not so much a refusal to obey as it is a fear as to what might happen next. He fears God, but he is also subject to human fear. He says, Elijah, I'm on your side. If you go to Ahab, or if I go to Ahab, he'll kill me. He's been searching like mad to find you. And the God of heaven must be preserving you. If I go to Ahab, God will hide you and I'll die. Because that's what's been happening all along. Ahab's trying to find you. He can't find you. Why? Because God's hiding you. Therefore, if I go and say, Elijah's here, you won't be there and I'll lose my head. You get the point. It's all very reasonable. Now, we have thoughts in this series already. In chapter 17. That it is the duty of the child of God to obey the word of God without question. I want to remind you again about being careful about strategizing your actions by looking at perceived outcomes. That's the warning here. We have a tendency, and I said this a few weeks ago, we have a tendency within our mind to look down the pathway of life and say, if I do this, then this will follow. Now we are to be prudent. We're to foresee the evil and hide ourselves, but we should not allow our future fears from presenting us to do what is right in the now. This is the will of God. Do it, and do not live second-guessing God's will. Now, undoubtedly, this section in Obadiah's life demonstrates weakness and struggles. We all suffer from these inconsistent doubts. And it's the questioning of Obadiah here that has caused some commentators to suggest he's not the real deal. To say, well, here we go. Here we we see the proofs in the pudding. That's the spirit of the Pharisee that can be present in our lives. That we have a tendency at times to judge others harshly. We allow weakness within ourselves. But when we perceive it in others, we say, Ha! I knew all along they weren't the real deal. I knew they were. It was just a matter of time before they showed their true colors. That spirit exists in many reformed and fundamental circles. We lack the compassion. 
to see that others who truly fear God at times can struggle with the anxiety of obeying the will of God. There are times in people's lives when it is not easy to do the right thing. And doing the right thing will bring significant consequence. And they wrestle and they struggle. And even for a time, perhaps, they may not do what we see as being right. They should do what is right. But as we observe them, let's be careful not to write them off altogether. Think of Abraham and his lies. David and his sins. And Samson and all his weaknesses. And Peter and his denials. And Thomas and his doubts. The true children of God have a tendency to weakness. That's not how the story ends, though. This attitude that governs true service has been proven in past action, is now in crisis as he questions his service, leads finally to the agreement that results in his service. Verse number 15. Elijah does not rebuke him for his questions but reassures him in the path of obedience. As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. He has the comfort of the word of God. The comfort that no matter how difficult the road may be, he has God's word on his side. And that's all that matters. I'm thinking of the account in Matthew chapter 21. You have the account of those who were asked to do the will of two sons. And the father says, go to work in my vineyard. And one says, I will not. But afterward he repents and goes. The second one says, I go, sir, and went not. One says, I'll go and doesn't. The other says, I won't go, but does go. And the Lord says, which of the name twain did the will of his father? They sent him the first, and namely the one who said, I will not go, but then repents and goes. The Lord knows our frame. He accepts our obedience in his grace. See, we're not like Christ. Christ did not say, I won't go, and then goes. Christ says, I will go, and he goes. There's nothing like this in Christ Jesus. We are not perfect in this body. And thus at times we find ourselves falling short of obedience. Have you an area of your life that you know has been a failure? You should have done this. And six months ago you made a decision, no, I'm not going to do that particular action. Or perhaps this week. Or today. You knew there was a pathway of integrity, but you chose not to take that pathway. Do not reason. It's too late now. I failed. Consider your ways and go back to the place that you failed the Lord and say, right now, I'm going to repent and I'm going to do what's right. It may be in the workplace. It may be in the family. It may be in church life. Maybe, let's put it this way. You said to yourself, I'm going to redouble my efforts to be at the prayer meeting. I know that's right and proper, but you haven't kept your word. You said you would go, but you haven't gone. What's the point? I keep feeling. Oh, the point is that despite your failures, it's still the right and proper thing to do. So therefore, do the will of God. 
Just one example of an abundance of examples. You're questioning, what is the will of God? The will of God is to obey his word. For some of you, perhaps, you're here today and you're unsaved. You rejected the gospel. You're commanded to obey the gospel, to repent and believe the gospel. But you didn't do it. It's not too late. It's not too late to do the will of God. It's only too late to do the will of God when you breathe your last breath. Today is a day of salvation. Seek the Lord today. And set out in a life that fears God. A life where God comes first. A life that will govern your attitudes and your actions in this world. Oh yes, a life at times when you'll find crisis and anxiety will plague you. But a life where you can serve God faithfully. And do much for the glory and honour of Christ's name. He is a challenging character. But what a challenge. May God help us to walk humbly with our God. Let's bow together please. In a closing word of prayer. Can we praise the Lord that Christ is not like Obadiah. And therefore as he has died on our behalf. He has procured the grace that we need. To faithfully and consistently to obey the Lord. Eternal God we look to thee in Christ's name. We pray for the grace that we need. To persevere in our obedience. To not turn back into the pathway of disobedience. But help us, O God, to honour thee. Help us, O Lord, to do your will. Help us, O God, to please thee in every aspect of our lives. In church, at home, in the workplace. O Lord God, we look to thee. Grant us grace throughout this day. Bless the baptismal service. And then as we come back here tonight in your will, may your favour rest upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.